After the debacle of the golden calf, the Lord does something so expected that we can actually miss its significance. He forgives his people and renews the covenant with them. See, I can almost hear you thinking, so, isn't that what God does? And you're right, he does. But why? Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I pray that the Holy Spirit really speaks to you in this message today. As we come to the last chapters of Exodus, we come across one of the first examples of the Lord's forgiveness of His people. And like so many other passages, it becomes a paradigm for understanding His actions in the rest of Scripture. I'm reading from Exodus 34, 1-10. to The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. All right, well, here we are. Second last week, the penultimate week as they, well, maybe no one says that, but it's the second last week. Um, I mentioned last week when we were looking at the golden calf that um, perhaps one of the handy ways to think about the uh, narrative arc of the story was to consider it from the perspective of a romantic comedy. Uh, boy meets girl, they fall in love, it looks like there's going to be a happy ending, and about three quarters of the way through the film, one partner does something stupid that brings the whole thing into jeopardy, right? And then if it's a good rom-com, you get to the end, and it's like, yay, they're all back together, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And while the book of Exodus is not a romantic comedy, and it doesn't file under that genre particularly well, uh, the, the narrative arc kind of follows that same trajectory. You have a relationship between two relatively unlikely partners. You have the Lord and you have the people of Israel. Uh, And it looks like there's going to be a really happy ending against all, I guess, reasonable expectations. Uh, The Lord uh, brings them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, enters into this really significant relationship with them. Uh, They promise to be his people. He promises to be their God. It looks like it's all working to plan. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the instructions for the tabernacle so that God can dwell with the people, and then the people go and do something stupid that jeopardizes the entire relationship. 
right? While Moses is up the mountain, it's at that point in time that the people end up in a really careless sort of way of breaking the covenant. They make a golden calf, uh, which is in direct disobedience to the second commandment that God gave to not make any images. Uh, And uh, when Moses comes down the mountain and sees what's happened, he smashes the tablets, breaking the covenant. Uh, And there's a, a chapter or two of just chaos, Uh, because we're not exactly certain what's going to happen to the people. Uh, There's a threat hanging over them uh, that suggests that God still might destroy them. He hasn't quite decided what to do with them. And so there's this kind of moment in the story where we're a little bit uncertain about how this is all going to unfold. And then we get to chapter 34, and something kind of inexplicable happens. And this is where I want to come back to the romantic comedy. I don't know whether it was because I used it last week or whether it just, it just works for me, but I was thinking about some romantic comedies where in the end, they get back together, but you're not convinced that they should be back together. You know, those, you know, like you watch a movie and you're willing to suspend your imagination because that's the whole point of movies. But every so often you get to the end of a movie and you think to yourself, you're back together, but you never... You no one ever explored why he lied in the first place, or you never went back and figured out that problem. Like, there was no resolution to it. And so there's this enormous plot hole, which leaves us a little bit dissatisfied. And as I came to chapter 34, it occurred to me that what we have here is a really bizarre plot hole, in that the Lord forgives the people of Israel and renews the covenant with them again. Now, you kind of go, well, of course he does. It's the Bible. That sort of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? He forgives and renews the covenant. But why would he do that? Because there is absolutely no compelling evidence that this is going to work out any better the second time than it did the first time. Is there? I pointed out at the end of the the golden calf scene, the people of Israel are are, are sad about what's happened. They're, um, They're kind of contrite. But at the end of the day, they haven't repented. They haven't confessed their wickedness. They haven't said to the Lord, yeah, no, that was, that was really kind of boneheaded of us to have kind of made a golden calf and think that that was okay. We probably should have thought that one through a little bit. There's no prayer in fa- and fasting and, and covering themselves with sackcloth and ashes and some sort of biblical show of repentance. Uh, and Moses, did you hear his language in that reading? He says, oh, Lord, if we, if we found your favor, would you please go with us, even though we are stiff-necked and given over to wickedness and rebellion? Like, he just said that to God. He said, we are stiff-necked. We don't like turning one way or the other. We like doing our own thing. Thank you very much. We tend to be wicked and evil most of the time. This is the same group of people who, uh, their very posture towards the Lord, whenever things got hard, their posture towards him was not to trust him, but to immediately be suspicious that what has taken place was actually God trying to be nasty to them. This people... And they've broken the covenant the first time in this careless, careless kind of way. And just two chapters later, the Lord forgives them and enters into the same covenant again. Same thing. There is no new clauses. There's no no additional bits where God goes, okay, listen, uh, the first covenant did not work. So this is not not 1A. Again, this is like 2.0. This is covenant 2.0. It's completely and utterly different. Nope. Same covenant. You you read through some of the instructions that uh, Moses is is given, the summary in chapter 34, and you'll notice that there's some contextual pieces there. 
the, uh, the emphasis in the renewed instructions, which are almost repeated from earlier instructions, are wrapped around two things. One, gathering together to worship the Lord, and secondly, being careful to avoid idolatry. Exactly the problem of the second commandment. And yet, we're not given any real reason why the Lord would enter back into this same relationship. Because it's not going to work any better the second time than it did the first. If you follow the, the, the story of, of the people of Israel all the way through the Old Testament, what you find is again and again, the people of Israel wander farther and farther and farther and farther away from the Lord. There are a couple places, say at the end of the book of Judges, when the people of Israel have been in the land of Canaan, they've displaced many of the nations, but not all of them, uh, and they end up being as wicked as the people that they had displaced. The people who God had said, part of the reason why I'm gonna drive them out is because of their wickedness. And the people of Israel function and act as wickedly as the people they displaced. Do you remember the story of Elijah? You know, the, the, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah um, has this confrontation with the prophets of, of, of Baal, another local deity. Uh, and then he, he runs away to the mountain of God, actually, the same mountain that the people of Israel are at here, but long, long, many, many years later. And he comes before the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, why are you here? And he says, listen, I'm just, I've had it. It's just too hard. I'm like, I'm the last prophet out there. There's nobody left who worships you. It's just, it's awful. And the Lord encourages him. He says, listen, he says, basically, there are still 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And we think, oh, 7,000 people, come on, Elijah, kind of, you know, cheer up, it's okay. But I just want you to think about that number for a moment. That's 7,000 people in the entire nation. Now, I have no idea about the uh, population of Israel in the time of uh, Elijah, but let's just say super, super conservatively that the entire population was 700,000 people. Let's just say. I think it's probably higher than that, but let's just say 700,000 because then I can do the math on 7,000, which is 1%, isn't it? 1% of the people? If you're in mission work and you, you think about going to a least reached people group somewhere in the world, that would qualify. Where 1% or less of the people have any knowledge of the Lord. That's the situation. That's why, Mo, that's why Elijah rather is sent to the people of Israel. But these are the Lord's people. And the Lord's people have so utterly left him behind that 99% of the people are no longer even remotely trying to be faithful to the Lord. This is the relationship. And so we come back to Exodus 34, and, and I, I, I hope you understand why I had the question. Why in the world does the Lord enter into the same relationship again? Why does he enter into the same covenant without any extra bits and pieces, no added uh, kind of pieces of legislation to deal with this situation? No, he just does it all over again. And thankfully, I don't think the answer is all that far away because it all revolves again around the character of God. And the heart of the whole story that we see here revolves around God's character. And in particular, this self-declaration of God to Moses. Uh, once, um, once Moses had gone back to the Lord and the Lord had kind of said he'd forgive the people, Moses then asks, can I see your glory? Uh, and, uh, and the Lord says, I can't, you can't see my face, you can't see my face, but I will pass you by and I'll kind of push you into the cleft of the rock and I'll declare my name. And so this is the fulfillment of that. 
And this self-description, so this is not Moses describing God, this is God describing himself. And it's, it's a famous, it's like it's a, a, a famous description. So in verse six, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this quotation is used numerous times in Scripture. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, in a prayer of confession, uh, Ezra prays and describes this scenario and uses God's own self-description to describe him. Uh, in the Psalms, if you were to read such Psalms as uh, Psalm 86 or 103 or 145, Psalms of praise that include some historical reflections, they quote God's description of himself. In Joel chapter 2, there's a call to national repentance, which is based on this quotation of God describing himself. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah complains to God that he was gracious and compassionate to the wrong people, right? And all of this happens again and again. If the Lord is going to be described, so often he is described as, as either loving and faithful or gracious and compassionate. These things fit together. And even the language of, of judgment and, and, of, and of punishment and of discipline fits within the context of God's own faithfulness. Now, unlike the gods of the surrounding nations, you always knew what you were going to get with the Lord, right? You always knew what you were going to get with the Lord. Uh, he was not capricious. He didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He didn't get hangry. He didn't come home after a bad day at the office and kind of take it out on the people he liked the most. Like the, none of that ever happens. The Lord is always consistent and faithful. And he's always faithful to both bless and of discipline. He does what he says in both contexts. And if you go back to the second commandment, you'll actually find that some of this language is there, but inverted. As a little bit more of the context, shall we say. And this, I think, points to one of the most significant features of this story in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord's character as the basis for his actions towards his people. And the very heart of it, which gets played out again and again and again through Scripture, is this. That the relationship that God makes with the people of Israel is only going to work because God is committed to it fully. If God decided not to be fully, 100% committed, the relationship would fall apart. You know, most of our relationships, it's, even if it's not 50-50, it's a little bit give and take, isn't it? Right? You know, I'm there for you, and you're there for me, and so when I have a bad day, you help me out, and when you have a bad day, I help you out, and when we both have a bad day, we just we don't do anything good for each other, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? There's a little bit of give and take, but that's not the relationship that we have with the Lord. It's not like the people of Israel have ever contributed to the relationship. I know you should never say never when you're talking about relationships, but the people of Israel never did. It's not as if God ever had kind of a really bad patch, you know? Just I can't do anything right anymore, nothing's really working, my plans aren't happening, and the people are like, we're there for you, we got your back. That just doesn't happen. It's God's commitment to his people based on his character that makes the relationship work. And if it weren't for God's commitment to his people, the relationship would fall apart. This is played out all the way through the Old Testament and then into the New, where we find the same thing in Jesus, do we not? 
Our relationship with God through Jesus only works because God is 100% committed to making it work. You and I are, even at our best, we're a little bit unfaithful, aren't we? We're a little bit careless. We're a little bit ill-disciplined. Even if we're not completely and utterly wicked, we're usually not on our best. And the commitment of God to us in Christ is a reminder that He is in. And the reason why God is in is actually quite significant. If I were to ask you, why is it that God is so committed to us? Why is God so committed to His people? in the Old Testament, in the New, and down to this day, I think we might say something which sounds quite churchy and religious and probably kind of accurate, which is that because He loves us. And that's, that's partially true, right? God is loving and faithful and willing to forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin and all of those sorts of things. But that's not ultimately why God is committed to the relationship with His people. God is faithful here in, in Exodus 34, And he is all in on the relationship because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promise that he made to those patriarchs, Abraham and his son and then his son's son, right? To create a nation out of their descendants and to bless the whole world through them. And because God is faithful to his promise, he is committed to the relationship. But it's not even because God is a promise-keeping God that drives his commitment. Because ultimately, we have to ask, why did he make those promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? And the reason he made those promises to those men is because he wanted to restore and renew the world. This is the grand story of the Bible. The world was created good. It was marred by sin. And immediately, the Lord steps in and says, I will make this right. And because of his commitment to his purpose... He then makes a promise to Abraham, and now he is all in on his commitment to the people of Israel because they are part of his plan to restore the world. They are the ones who are to live a life in relationship with him that that shows the whole world what it looks like to live in relationship with the one true God. And you and I are the same. We are in relationship with Jesus not to feel nice about ourselves, not just to get to heaven, and we're not even in a relationship with God through Christ just to be obedient. Obedient people who keep all the commands is not God's end game. His end game is the renewal and restoration of the entire world. That's his end game. And you and I, seeking to be as faithful as we can, seeking to be as obedient as we can, seeking to reflect his character in the world, have been swept up in that plan, have been swept up in his promises, and we are held because he is committed to making this work, not just because he loves us, but because he wants to renew the world. So here we have this paradigm Another example, another model of how God will always interact with his people that is told and retold, reinterpreted again and again and again throughout Scripture and which helps us make sense of what's happened for us in Christ Jesus. But it begs the question, what's our response to that? 
I mean, it's all well and good, isn't it, to kind of get the big story and kind of go, oh yeah, 50,000 foot level of the Bible, I get it. You know, good creation, marred by sin, God's promise, he's really super committed to us, great, fantastic. I walked away knowing some more things. But what is our response? And I mentioned that this, um, this declaration of God is, 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 pops up in a few places in Scripture and is often in the context of repentance and confession. And that's not a bad place for us to start and to return to, uh, where we recognize that God's commitment to us and God's commitment to His plans and His promises and His purposes are so significant that He's swept up all of our sins and thrown them as far as the east is from the west, right? That, that confession and repentance is not a bad place to start. But I was struck by the fact that when Moses heard the Lord's self-declaration, his response in verse 8 was to bow to the ground at once and to worship. I think you can picture it in your mind, can't you? You know, Moses kneeling down before the Lord, prostrating himself before the Lord. That makes sense. But what does it mean when it says that he worshipped? Sometimes I think we can assume that worship is singing. And it's not, is it? Kind of, but not really. Right? What happens for those of us who, you know, don't like singing or aren't very good at it and therefore don't like it, right? What, what does that do? And if it's only singing, I think we miss something, right? So I don't think Moses bowed down and then kind of hummed the latest kind of tune that had come out of the, you know, mountaintop music ministry or whatever it was that they had started earlier that week. I, like, I don't think that's what was happening here, right? Let me remind you what worship is and and. and and what we worship. Right? We, we worship, as human beings, we worship those things and those people and sometimes those institutions that we believe control our destiny. We worship those things and people and organizations that we believe control our destiny. So take money, for instance. I don't know anybody who has a shrine to money in their house, right? Some little gold-plated Thing that they open up, it's got candles and different denominations of coins and a picture of the stock exchange, and they play Pink Floyd to it, and they, you know, and bow down and whatnot. I'm like, I don't know anybody who does that. But you and I know, don't we, that for many people in our society, and perhaps even for us, there is an idolatry of money because we believe that money controls our destiny. If we have enough of it, we have security. If we have enough of it, we can afford the good things of life. If we have enough of it, we have a certain amount of peace in our lives. And we pursue money because we believe it controls our destiny. And worship then, we worship what we believe controls our destiny, but worship itself is actually bringing our lives into alignment with the will of the one that we worship. So think about people in our society. Or think about yourself, who recognize and notice the tendrils of idolatry in money, how easy it is to align our lives, our attitudes, our work, our relationships to the will and purposes of gaining more money. I mean, how, how many people align their whole life to that? And you can duplicate that across the things, can't you? Across all sorts of areas, whether it be about popularity, whether it be about education, Whatever it might be, we can end up aligning our lives to it. A life of worship is about aligning our lives to the will and purpose of God. And so often our alignment's off, isn't it? Whoops, over there, oh, nope, that's it, right? 
Worship is a life that slowly but surely becomes aligned to the will and purposes of God. That's worship. You see, if you never, ever, 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 ever sing a worship song, if you refuse to sing when we gather together, although you shouldn't because it's encouraging to people around you, but if you never do, if you never listen to Hope FM, if you never listen to any sort of Christian music at all, you can still live a life of worship if you are bringing your life into alignment with the wills and purpose of God. And if all you ever listen to is worship music, nonstop, 24 hours a day, that's the only playlist that you have, it's the only thing you ever listen to, it is also possible for your life to be completely out of alignment, isn't it? Listening to the music, singing along with the music, being moved by the music is not necessarily alignment, but you see the connection. Because if my life becomes more and more aligned to the will and purpose of God, then when I worship in song, when we worship in song, the words that we sing are hopefully a reflection of my heart's desire to be aligned. When we sing about God's faithfulness, or we sing about God's goodness, or we sing about His plans, or His purposes, or His promises that never fail, what we are doing is we are expressing out loud what we hope is the language of our hearts that reflects some kind of alignment growing in our life. And a life of worship is a life that recognizes that it is God who controls our destiny. It is God in whom the good life is found. And our task is to the best of our ability, knowing that it is because of God's great commitment to His plans and purposes that we don't have to be perfect, that we can slowly but surely allow the Holy Spirit to bring our lives into alignment with His will and purposes. And once that happens, then everything we do becomes worship. When every part of our lives are aligned, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our relationships, everything. And so this story, again, provides us with this model for not only how the Lord engages with us and why, but also a bit of a life of worship as well. And so we are going to worship, he says confidently. We're going to sing some songs, but I'm going to invite you to worship while you do them. That you take the words that we sing as we conclude our service and allow them to be an expression of your heart's desire to bring your life a little bit more into alignment with God's will and purposes. Just a little bit more. And as you leave tonight, I encourage you to live a life of worship. Whether you hum any of the music we sing tonight or not, to be someone who is committed to the best of your ability to be as faithful as you can and aligned to the things of God. Let me pray as the team come up. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, that uh, your end game for us is, is not perfection in this life. It's not just about being um, perfect. It's not just about completely obeying and being totally faithful. That ultimately, all of our faithfulness, whatever we can scrape together, all of our faith, all of our obedience, uh, is ultimately designed to be part of your plans to restore the world. And, and I pray that for each one of us, that as we reflect on what a life of worship looks like, that you might use the, the words of these songs that we're about to sing to express our heart desire and that you would be showing us where our lives need to be a little bit more aligned. And may we be a people who are a worshiping people. 
who are committed to seeing all of our life aligned with your will and your purposes. Thank you that in the midst of our faithlessness, you are faithful. In the midst of our inability, you are always able. And I pray that you might continue to lead and guide us as we seek to follow after you. We pray this in your name. Amen. The Lord's commitment to Israel and to us is based in his character, but is ultimately grounded in his purposes to make right all that sin has made wrong. This commitment should lead us to a life of worship, aligning our lives to his will and purposes. If this has been encouraging to you, it would mean a lot to me if you'd share it with someone else. And as always, we'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at guymeabaptist.org.au. This series is currently being broadcast on the ACC TV, and you can follow New Horizons on Mondays at 10 p.m. or Thursdays at 8.30 a.m. and Fridays at 11. And watch previous sermons on our website. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.